Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. In each episode, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. My special guest for today's episode is journalist Melissa Fleur Afshar. I came across Melissa through an article she wrote on Newsweek about the contraceptive pill called Did My Pill Cause Cancer? Women describe how the pill changed their lives. In the article, she speaks to women and medical experts about the physical and mental impact of the pill on these women and its wider implications. Now, my interest in this issue was ignited by the book by Sarah Hill, PhD, who wrote a game-changing book called This Is Your Brain on Birth Control, which I recommend any woman and definitely men read too. With other authors like Louise Perry and Mary Harrington also having wrote books critiquing the longer-term societal impact of the pill on women's mental health, their sexual proclivities and their brains. Sarah Hill's book is more of an objective look at how the pill affects the brain as a general rule. In this episode, we discuss Melissa's wider journalism journey and breaking into the industry without having the family connections. For industry issues, we discuss the challenges she's felt to receiving feedback on her articles and the vulnerability of that exposure. For Melissa's mental health, we discuss a tumour that her mum developed when Melissa was 17 years old and the mental health impact that had on her. Thankfully, it was benign and has been removed. Melissa's father was also diagnosed with dementia in early 2023 and we discussed the emotional toll that's taken on Melissa and her wider family in caring for him as his mind deteriorates. We finished by discussing her own negative experience of the pill from the ages of 24 to 25 which sparked her interest in writing the Newsweek article, how the pill made her feel lost, having an existential crisis and led her to eventually come off of it. So this is how my conversation with Melissa Afshar went. Melissa, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you. After I came across your very important Newsweek article on the contraceptive pill, I was very keen to have you on to shine a light on it for my male listeners and female listeners alike. First of all, how are you on this Sunday morning? Pretty good. Thank you for asking. Thank you for having me, by the way. It's lovely to be here. I'm a bit tired, but it's always like that on Sundays. <laughs> sure, many people can relate. <laughs> mm, indeed. Your journalism journey and wider journey is a really important one for how you broke into journalism and the aforementioned issue of the pill, pal. So without further delay, are you ready to start the show and talk all about it? Yes, absolutely. We're going to start your podcast by talking about your journalism journey, pal. So first of all, I'll ask all my journalists who have come on this podcast this question first. What sparked your love for writing or storytelling or reporting, everything in between and the journey to where you are today? Okay, so the answer to this question is in two parts, I guess. Partly the influence of my dad and then partly me, obviously. So 
My dad, as many people can probably tell from my surname, was Persian. He was from Tehran in Iran. And he was a very, very creative man. Obviously, we get on to talking more about him later on about his illness at the moment. But when he was young, he was a very, very creative man. And he worked in the filmmaking industry. At that point in time, Iran was really a hotbed for creativity. They had a new wave film movement akin to the one that we hear about in France and Italy. And my dad was, you know, as a teenager, as someone in their early 20s, trying to get involved in all of that. He was part of a theatre group. He was helping out on set of a load of films. At that point in time, I think the last Queen of Iran was really encouraging of people pursuing the arts and really trying to encourage a, a national interest in the arts, particularly in young people. So my dad was very taken by all of that. I believe they even had um, a film festival. I remember him telling me that Alan Delon, who was like a huge French actor back in the 60s and 70s, was in attendance there as well. So I've got this super creative dad. But unfortunately, my dad's creativity didn't really end up going where he wanted to. He left Iran in the late 1970s to come to London to pursue a career in filmmaking. Growing up in Tehran in the 1970s, everything was changing and everything was improving. But at the same time, obviously, the center for art, creativity, writing was all in Europe. So that's what kind of pushed mm. my dad to come here. So my dad got to London very easily, as it was back then, because the relations between the two countries were totally different, just arrived and settled in very easily, and was hoping to settle into a filmmaking course. I wish I could remember where, but I can't remember. It must have been at some kind of university or college but unfortunately, Iran's monarchy fell and, you know, it succumbed to the Islamic revolution and became kind of what we see today. Obviously, there's much more that can be said there as millions of people around the world have been affected by that. But for me personally, that put a massive halt on my dad's creative ambitions because I think the clerical regime that came into power, I don't know exactly what statement they issued or what what they well, they didn't like the arts <laughs> certainly not certainly yeah. did not like the arts and i believe that they said that all iranian citizens who'd emigrated to europe and to america australia the west to pursue some kind of artistic future should absolutely stop because that's not in line with their own ideology which very few iranians actually agree with but you know that's more can be said about that another time, I guess. So my dad was not allowed to study what he wanted to study. He wasn't a British citizen at that time. Obviously, you don't become a British citizen overnight. If he was, then he, of course, would have been able to go and study whatever he liked. But at that point in time, he was an immigrant from Tehran who had come here. And, you know, when this happened, he was no longer able to actually pursue what he wanted to. From what I've heard from him, there was no way around it. Like he couldn't sneak himself into an art course here or there. The reason why was because he, I think, was dependent on funding from the, the Iran before the Islamic Revolution. He was dependent on funding or some kind of support from the government at the time which was sponsoring young people to study the arts in the West. Obviously, that funding was completely stripped away with the incoming Islamic regime. So 
my dad ended up giving all of that up and studied electronics and ended up becoming a super successful businessman in this field, in the tech and electronics field. But the reason why I went into all of that, even though it's such a long story, is because it left such a mark on me. I believe that much of what I am today and my own interest in producing, writing, creating and the current affairs, of course, is because of my dad. And I don't think it's really a case of a parent really wanting to have achieved a certain life goal and never having gotten there and then the child coming in to pursue that for them and the parent living vicariously through them. I don't think it's one of those situations, but my dad's creativity certainly rubbed off on me. When I was growing up, he would tell me in my school summer holidays, write a book, write an article, use this time to be creative. And he used to try and like incentivize me to do it as well. He'd say, I'll give you £10 if you write something. <laughs> but yeah, he was really encouraging of creativity. And he loved to hear about my ideas, what I was thinking about, blah, blah, blah. Moving on from that, he was also very, I don't think obsessed is the right word, but he really admired journalists. Mm. He loved watching the news. He loved talking about the news with everyone. And I remember a very long time ago, I was watching TV and my dad was there. And I think Susanna Reid was on the TV. Now, Susanna Reid was super big a couple of years ago in the journalism industry, as, as I'm sure you remember. I think she anchored Good Morning Britain. She was at the BBC before that. And she was talking about some kind of opportunity she'd had, you know, when broadcasters are invited in to talk about something that they've done for charity or for personal reasons. And I remember that she described the opportunity as being a privilege. And my dad, I remember, turned around and looked at me and said, see, that's the journalism background. Look how nicely she speaks. Look how eloquently she, uh, you know, is grateful for these things and puts that into words so well. He was very taken by media. I went on a trip to the BBC with him. I, I don't, nowadays, I work in media, so I know how hard it is to get into these really glossy mm. news buildings. You can't just walk in. But I don't know what happened. Like, we went on some kind of family trip into London. So I'm actually from Hertfordshire, but very close to London. So it's very normal for people growing up in Hertfordshire to go into London with their friends and family. But I don't remember what happened. I, I was so young. But I remember being around the Langham. I don't remember where the BBC is exactly, but I know it's near the Langham Hotel, the London Broadcasting Centre. Yeah, it's Broadcasting House. Yeah, yeah. Yes. You can tell I'm not actually from London or else I definitely know what like borough or street or like tube stop is nearby. <laughs> yeah, South Regent Street. As a, yeah. as a former BBCer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that sounds right. <laughs> so yeah, that actually does ring a bell for me. But yeah, I don't know what happened, but we kind of all went into the BBC and my dad said, oh, we'd love to have a look. And they kind of just let us in. <laughs> and I remember going into the communal canteen area now, I haven't been in the BBC in a very long time, but back then in like the late 2000s, there was some kind of like cafeteria, canteen, entrance hall. Yep. I remember being in there and there was a screen where you could see everything that was going on in the newsroom. There was some way to see everything. That yeah, was going yeah, yeah. On. It's not as glossy as people make it out to be, but it is, that is <laughs> no, correct. Yeah. <laughs> no, they, they never are. But it, I don't know. I still find it such an exciting environment. So yeah, we ended up there, which was really cool and just had a quick look and 
then we went home. So yeah, my dad was always very into that sort of thing. He was always reading articles. I personally was always a very creative child. I read a lot. I knew a lot of long words for someone in primary school. While I was terrible at maths, I was very good at English. And I guess when you are like that, when you are quite creative and you're quite skilled at writing and you're into this sort of thing, journalism, media becomes sort of the logical next step, I guess. <laughs> I wrote my first book when I was seven, which oh, wow. was really, really not much of a completed book that could actually go to a publisher. But it is something that I look back on now as a 26 year old and think that's pretty cool. You know, I, I used my time off duty from watching Tracy Beaker or Blue Peter or whatever was, whatever was a big deal back in the 2000s pretty well. And I remember the subject of the book and I'm very impressed with that. I had a lot of ideas. I rarely pursued many of them until I got into my 20s, but I very much had all of that within me. So the, the creative dad and the creative child and I guess as I said journalism becomes the logical next step and the interest in producing seeing the world around you it does sort of spark well it sounds like your dad's got some classic Iranian charm as well to just blag <laughs> his way into a BBC building <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> when it comes to pursuing journalism you described yourself off air to me as I think you used the term average does that, does that belie a self-esteem issue? Because you're clearly not average to achieve what you've done so far. <laughs> um, it's a really tough question to answer because while I am a journalist and I have been for a few years and I've done a bit of writing, I've done a bit of broadcast, I've been here and there, I'm not a media trained person. I'm, I'm not podcast trained in it. Here we are, 296 <laughs> episodes later. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very good point. But I guess what I mean by that is that I don't really have a very polished sort of demeanor, I guess. I do see myself as very ordinary and I feel like I've worked hard and I've, I've also been lucky and I've had good confidence where I've needed to, you know, when I've sent off a Iranian coming back to it. You're never short of yeah. confidence, Iranians, I'd tell you that for free. <laughs> so I, I guess... <laughs> I, perhaps it's modesty, but I, I would say there's nothing about me that other people can't replicate or also right. can't achieve. I, I feel like anyone could, you know, if they put their minds to it, be able to follow the career that I've started or get to where I've gotten to. But yeah, uh, <laughs> so always such a tough question to answer. I guess when you originally asked me that question, I was probably thinking back to my school years. Like I said earlier, I was always very good at English, writing. I loved history, which is what I went on to study as well. But I was pretty bad at maths. <laughs> I was okay at science. No one wanted to pick me for their PE team. No, I'm joking. I, I, I had a lot of friends. I had a lot of fun, but I wasn't particularly athletic either. I don't, I don't know how I got onto sports teams here and there. I guess that all kind of builds you up to thinking, well, you know, I wasn't the one that got to Oxford and ended up in the local newspaper. I must be kind of normal. <laughs> and I think it's not such a bad way to be. I mean, when you're working in media and, you know, you have your own glossy website and you're progressing in your career and you're getting free things and invited here and there, it's very easy to sort of grow a bit of an ego, <laughs> I would say. Mm -hmm. When it comes to industry issues, the only one that you wanted to talk about was feedback, which you mm -hmm. get from your articles and your struggles sometimes when that feedback is negative. So this is a perk of the jobs. You can't really avoid it. But how has it impacted your mental health? Um, 
Well, at the moment, I'm pretty good. Very good at dealing with that sort of thing. Like if I got a message, actually, I got one the other day, two days ago now, I think. I got an email from a reader in the US. I'd recently written an investigation about animal rescue shelters and was looking into why they're overwhelmed in the US and what animal welfare is like in the US at the moment. It's quite an underreported area. So, yeah, definitely. Um, I thought that would be quite interesting. Anyway, I wrote this story. I got quite good feedback from, <laughs> from the public. I mean, it's very rare when, you, when you're working on that sort of story about animal issues and animal rights and things for you to get negative feedback. I mean, most people love animals. Any kind of coverage in, in that space, they're happy with. But anyway, I got, I got an email from a reader in the US who said that I missed out a few important points. They didn't like my headline. And, you know, I felt totally fine with that. People are absolutely entitled to write into me and tell me what they think and tell me what how they feel about something I've written or that has come from Newsweek or anywhere else I've been. How else can media evolve and adapt if it's not, you know, in footstep with the public, if it's not listening to the public and listening to the national mood, I guess, and what people are thinking about and what people's opinions are, are on topics doesn't mean we should go and report what people's opinions are because obviously th that's not correct but it's really important to have that atmosphere and to be able to encourage people to write into you and so it's something that I'm absolutely fine with now it makes me happy actually that my stories have reached so many people that you know a, a small percentile of them have decided to write in and comment on the story but when I was just starting out in my career, I found this really, really hard. And some of the articles, uh, sorry, sorry, not articles, <laughs> some of the messages that I would get would be a little bit harsh. One sticks in mind for me. You always remember and... the bad ones, pal. You always yes. remember the bad ones. <laughs> yeah, you, you do. And uh, obviously this is a mental health psychology podcast, but I, I'm sure you oh, I won't go as far to say psychology, but definitely <laughs> mental health. <laughs> won't class myself as that qualification. <laughs> But I'm sure you've heard that our brains are more keen to hold on to negative experiences, course, yeah. negative comments, especially when you're a bit younger. I can't remember what this person said to me. It was something like every single article or essay I've ever read of you has been like horrible. You are like a college student writes better than you. Like <laughs> I've had some pretty colourful ones. And when I was a young journalist, I would find these quite, I guess, upsetting I'd worry oh what, what if like I never progress in my career what if the whole world thinks this what if like my a future editor believes this as well and obviously that leads to a little bit of anxiety you're worried about this but it's one of those things it's like you get used to it over time or you mm. have better tools and ways of dealing with yeah. it and you uh, and you realize that people who are doing it are largely projecting their own mental health issues or yeah not, not doing a lot in their life as well so. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do find it quite odd. Like, like I totally understand if someone does not like an article I've written or constructive feedback is fine, isn't it? You always take that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not just absolutely. like you're shit, and this is why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I genuinely don't understand the point of that at all. It's kind of just like trying to coax you into resigning from the industry and yeah. going into hiding somewhere. I just, I, I really don't get it. But as you say, like a constructive comment or, or just a, like an opinion is always welcome and well received. But yeah, I absolutely did find that hard. And I feel like more young journalists probably find it hard than they let on, mm. especially the ones who have like vast Twitter followings and are very active online. And 
I reckon more people find it hard than they let on, but because it's, uh, you know, you're in the media and you have social media and people can reach out to you. It's quite a normal part of life now to receive mm. unkind messages. And, um, what a state, what, what a state <laughs> of affairs that is. Yeah. And unfortunately, I feel that's probably why you don't hear so many young journalists speak out about that. I guess they just think, well, you know, that's just the climate we're living in. We have social media and people can say what they like to us. But luckily, um, as I'm sure you know, there's a lot more dialogue going on about this, about being kind online, being critical in a, in a decent way online. And I'm sure that's very helpful too. It has been to me. Let's talk about the reason we are speaking today, Melissa, which is your excellent Newsweek article on the contraceptive pill. So tell me first why you wanted to write it and the stories of the women you spoke to before we dive deeper. Again, this is a a twofold answer. So I was really, really pushed and motivated to write this story because, as I said to you off air, I was on the contraceptive pill too for about one year, which is not very long um, compared to so many other women out there, especially the women I spoke with. But if it's bad, it can feel long, though. <laughs> yeah, it certainly, it certainly can. And I had a pretty tumultuous time on the pill, to say the least. I suffered from very severe mood swings. I cried a lot more than I usually do. I felt in a very dark place at times, felt very lost. I didn't feel like me is probably the best way I can put it. I lost touch with myself. I would still do the same things and I'd go to work or I'd go out with my friends or family and I'd have a nice time, but I just didn't feel like me. It was a very strange experience. So I had this negative experience myself as someone who's in their early 20s. At the time I was 24 when I started the pill. And that's a similar age to a lot of the women that I spoke with for the story and a lot of the women who have said they've been affected by the pill. And so I had my own experience there. But aside of that, back in March, a study was published by the University of Oxford, which revealed that there is a small increased link between the progesterone only pill, which we call the mini pill normally, and breast cancer. And this was a a big story at the time because... Most people felt like this mode of the contraceptive pill, the the mini pill, progesterone only pill, whatever you want to call it, didn't have an associated cancer risk. I mean, the pill has been around since the 60s. And for a long time, people have suspected that the combined pill has some kind of link with breast cancer or increased risk. And there have been studies into this. But no one was talking about this form of the pill, which has become way more popular in the last few years. And it's the one I was on Mm. too. So this kind of all came together. I'd had a bad experience and I'd seen this uh, coverage out there and I felt like, you know, it's time to actually speak to some of these women. There were a lot of great articles online at the time, but I felt like many of them were first person pieces, albeit fantastically written by other writers in the industry, or were kind of just like sweeping narratives about the contraceptive pill. I didn't feel like anyone was actually speaking with normal young women who had gone on the pill for whatever reason we're usually inclined to go on it and had had a really bad time in really serious ways. I mean, the stories in, in that article are really harrowing. We had one woman yeah. believe that, you know, her breast cancer at the age of 26 was linked to being on the mini pill. Another woman who believed her fertility issues were linked to being on the pill for a couple of years. Another one with mental health struggles, anxiety, mood changes really serious cases there. I just felt like no one had actually 
given these women a platform to kind of say what they were going through. And we hadn't heard stories that harrowing. So that's why. Mm. Um, and um, I'm really happy that it had such an impact and that we get to speak more about it today. As you say in the piece, around 150 million women take the pill across the globe. And this isn't a podcast saying you shouldn't take the pill, you should take the pill. It's just to lay out the facts, both for reasons of, say, avoiding unwanted pregnancies, but also other health reasons such as a desire to regulate their periods better or even prevent acne. Now, as I found out reading Sarah Hill's brilliant book, This Is Your Brain on Birth Control, which I mentioned in the intro, the pill can, as we both know, have a huge impact on women's brain and physical health. So one anonymous woman told you her personality changed so drastically that she had to be assessed for borderline personality disorder. Another said she'd come close to domestically abusing her husband because of it. Now, these are quite seriously problematic consequences for those women. Just unpack this for me and why it's so important for women to have an informed conversation with a medical professional before going on it and also coming off it. So the contraceptive pill, while it is marketed and has always been marketed as a sort of one size fits all solution, in my own opinion, this is not coming from a GP. But, you know, in my own opinion, that's kind of how it looks. Bar a very small minority of women for um, very serious health reasons, anyone can go on it. And it's kind of marketed to the general population. And this can be problematic because obviously mm. the pill affects people in different ways. Yes. As is evident in the story, I mean, all these women were on the same pill, but it affected them all in entirely different ways and all very serious ways. And it's going to be really hard for you to understand whether the pill is right for you or what kind of impact it will have on you without having a really comfortable chat with your GP. And the right oh. GP, by the way, as we both know, sometimes the GPs can be like, oh, just take it. It's fine. You'll be right. Yes. Yeah, that's very, very true. And a lot of the girls in the story made that point as well, that the pill was kind of tossed to them as a solution to whatever problem they were facing or whatever life thing was going on at the time. Either they were trying to protect themselves from pregnancy or they had really painful periods or they just wanted to go on it because it's the right of passage I guess as I, back, back in, back in I wouldn't know pal <laughs> <laughs> I completely agree with what Dr Semiozis said in the piece and, and what we're repeating here now that it's really important to speak with a GP that you feel comfortable talking to that you trust and you know actually have the confidence to open up and voice your concerns and say I'm kind of worried like what if I get really bad mood swings or what if I have a family history of breast cancer and I'm kind of scared about going on the pill, but, you know, I got, I got, I got into a relationship. Or, or BPD or something else which could have an effect on it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah very yeah. much so. Very much so. I am really happy that the story can steer people to take control of their GP appointments, mm. I guess. Not just sit there and say, all right, cool, I'll take the pill, off I go. But actually have a really informed chat about it. So yeah, because the pill can affect people in so many different ways. Obviously, the pills made up of loads of synthetic hormones, and they're powerful. An <laughs> yeah, yeah, these can all have a, a, an impact on your body. So everybody's different, and yeah, I guess there's not much more I can really add to that other than the fact mm. that just be confident, have the ease to speak to your GP. And push back and feeling. stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I guess the right thing to say is to advocate for yourself. Yes, advocate, um, yes. When you're sat in that chair and if you're feeling a little bit worried about going on the pill for the first time, 
to voice those concerns and figure out if it's the right thing for you. You spoke to several case studies for this article. We've mentioned a couple already. Now, one of these women who used a pseudonym said she had been prescribed the pill at just 15 by her doctor when she'd been experiencing painful ovarian cysts and her doctor had advised that the pill would reduce the pain of those or maybe reduce the size of those. I'm not too sure. Now, a study of more than 1 million women in Denmark, which was published in November 2016, suggested that adolescents who were prescribed the pill had a higher risk of developing depression. Now, in your journalistic opinion, I know you're not a medical professional, do you think there should be a minimum age for women to be prescribed the pill, knowing what some of the potential side effects can be, as you stated in the article? So, for example, it could be headaches, upset stomachs, sore breasts, period changes, as we've said, mood changes, weight gain, high blood pressure, and the effect on adult female brains, let alone sort of very malleable teenagers. I would say no. And I know that that's not in line with my general message, which is to be, you know, very informed when going on the pill, speak to your GP, figure out if it's right for you, because there are so many risks associated. But the reason I say no is because there are, albeit a very small percentile of women who really need the pill from a young age for their own personal reason, and who go on to have a pretty harmless experience on it. I actually have a friend, a really close friend, who went on the pill super young. I think she was like 13 or 14. Wow. And she had extremely painful and heavy periods that she was ah, just okay. un- that explains it. Okay. Un- unequipped with dealing with at the time. I mean, when your periods are that heavy and that painful and you're like 13 years old and about to go to school and um, mm. you're in pain, like what can you really do at, at that age? You're embarrassed as well about yeah. all these kinds of things. Is that sort of like a bit of like a precocious puberty sort of thing, like having those periods quite heavy from an earlier age or not? I'm not too sure because, as you know, I don't have a medical background. Sure. Um, I think it's entirely possible to just have super heavy or painful periods at a young age without being endometriosis. Like I don't have endometriosis. And when I was younger, my periods were really... This is very TMI, by the way, but I guess that's No, no, this is what this podcast is for, pal. This (laughs) is what this podcast is for. But I, I would suffer from super heavy and painful periods when I was younger and they sort of eased as I got older and, you know, my body okay. changed and puberty sort of became a lot quieter. That does tend to happen uh, for women that don't have endo. You can just have pretty shit periods <laughs> and mm. it gets better as you grow up. So the reason I say no, that there shouldn't be an age cap there is because, like I said, there are a very small minority of women who really feel they need the pill young and who find it to be very helpful and don't have any um, qualms or concerns there like my friend who also lives in the UK but if that wasn't the case I guess I would say no because the the things that I've researched and the people I've spoken with for the story were quite alarming and 15 is very young to have your body influenced and changed in this sort of way. I want to move on to something that Sarah Hill talks about which is about how the pill affects physical desire in women so Mm -hmm. in the study that she cited women were asked to sculpt a mock-up of their ideal male partner now the women on the pill made a very feminine looking man and the women off the pill created a very masculine looking man so given the widely reported drop in global testosterone levels amongst men no one seems to know the answer is one theory i'm not saying it's a correct theory but is one theory being that the pill has contributed to this in some way or not Well, this was not a part of the research that I was looking into for the story. And this wasn't the angle that I I perceived for this story. So 
I don't have so much knowledge or like backing <laughs> to properly give you an answer to this, which I'm so sorry because I, I I would have loved to answer this, and I know that you would have you would have loved to hear that. But the good news is, a colleague of mine at Newsweek actually did write a story or, or did put research into this angle that the contraceptive pill does affect female desire and it affects who we fancy. And there did seem Men, to be this is the part a, you need to listen to. <laughs> a, 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 a lot of evidence that it does. And like I said, I can't give you answers as to why, because that wasn't my area of research. But the research does point to the answer that it does. <laughs> so it, w- it would be really interesting to find out. After the call, I'm going to be Googling this one. <laughs> In another part of the book, she interviewed women who said that they entered relationships whilst on the pill. And then after they came mm-hmm. off it, they stopped being attracted to their husbands or boyfriends, either ending the relationship mm-hmm. amicably or in some cases, very sadly, committing adultery. Now, given these very eye-opening stories, how would you advise my male listeners when it comes to the pill? Because they need to know about it and they need to be able to work out the best route with their partners or if they're (laughs) going to enter a relationship. So the way I contextualise that is kind of going back to my own article, which is that the pill has a profound emotional impact on women and Mm. contributes to desire, but it also contributes to how you are as a character. And this makes me feel like it can really stir the dynamic between a guy and his girlfriend if his girlfriend is affected by the pill in this way. So what I'd say to guys, <laughs> I'm not going to come on here and say, break up with your girlfriend if she goes... No, not at all. Please, please, <laughs> please, please don't. don't do that. <laughs> no, we, we support relationships. Guys, yeah. stay together. <laughs> but I would say if the girl hasn't gone on contraception and is considering it and you guys are together and you know you want to protect against pregnancy and you don't know you don't know what's the best option again back to the same point have a long and informed conversation with your gp and really think about it or you could have a trial where you go on the pill for a short couple of months and see if there are any emotional changes there that your girlfriend finds uncomfortable or that you've recognized within her so you know take things slowly Again, the same point of the pill doesn't need to be one size fits all, quick fix. It's not a magic pill. (laughs) No, to everything. It's okay to take things slowly and have a chat about all the options out there. And it's okay to do a trial. But, you know, if you are in a different situation where you're in a relationship that's been going on for quite a while and you were on some other kind of birth control, you recently switched to the pill, your girlfriend's just gone on the pill, and you've noticed behavior changes, emotional changes. She's not feeling well. She's opened up to you saying that, you know, I, I've got headaches. I'm struggling here, there with different things. I would say if you both come to the conclusion that the pill is the instigator behind all of these negative changes, it's okay to stop. I would say talk about it with each other. And decide if you'd like to, you know, put a stop on that and try something new. I really hope that everyone's relationship is supportive. Everyone who's listening, I hope you are in the loveliest of relationships. But sometimes, unfortunately, there are relationships where one party suffers in silence. The other one doesn't care or doesn't know or doesn't really understand what's going on. It's really important, I feel, as a woman for your partner to be 
in tune with your choice of contraception in this context of like okay we're in a relationship and we want to protect against pregnancy at this point in time so it's really really key for your partner to be up for having chats about it with you and kind of encourage conversation if you ever feel like it's not gone too well let's reflect on your journalism journey first so what has been your proudest achievement on it so far oh um it's a really tough question because I've loved everything that I've been involved with um, so far. Yes, some more than others. There are always fluff pieces and slow news days, but I'm quite proud of most of the work that I've produced. I would say um, most uh, proud moments for me are probably when I was at LBC. So before I joined Newsweek, I used to be a content producer, digital journalist at LBC. So I was on the news desk there. And I remember at the time we were doing a lot of coverage on the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan and just being involved with that, putting the word out there about what these women are going through is something that I would say I'm very proud of. I said to you off air that I feel like there's a real value in journalism. While it can be a lot of fun, games, free things, press events, nice glossy websites, it really to me is a public service. And when I get to work on stories like that, be involved with events like that, I feel very, very proud and happy and fulfilled and really encourage people to to keep up with news that important. (laughs) Do you get that altruistic value from your dad, do you think? Um, yeah, I would say so. But mainly from my my own interests in the world as well. I think I do definitely. Yeah, I would say it's a, it's a real mixed bag. Um, obviously, as I said earlier, my dad had a profound influence on me and the kind of person I became and the kind of journalist that I'd like to be. But I would say I've, I've always naturally <laughs> had that as well. <laughs> and as a final question, before we move on, what has this journey taught you about yourself? It's taught me that I am stronger than I think and more powerful than I think <laughs> in a non-scary way. I, as I've said to you a few times in this recording, I come from quite a small town in Hertfordshire. Like I said, my dad had this creative background, a love of filmmaking, but you know, he wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't Piers Morgan or Jon Snow or <laughs> anyone. <laughs> he was a very ordinary guy. And my mum's a midwife in an NHS hospital and I've been able to work on stories that have had a big impact, as has this contraceptive pill one. So I would say that it's taught me that I am stronger and more powerful than I think. And I hope that the people listening can take that forward and see that they themselves have the ability to make an impact or the impact that they'd like to see in the world. You don't need to have 12 journalism diplomas or like a City University of London broadcasting degree to, to write something of value or say something that you feel people need to hear or offer a good perspective, of course, uh, if, it, if you're not being rude or spreading misinformation. <laughs> so that's definitely what I would say to that. It's given me a real confidence and shown me that, you know what, I can do what I want to put my mind to. There's a quote in the Back to the Future movies. I love those movies. I'm a big nerd for those movies. But I think the dad in Back to the Future says you can achieve anything you put your mind to. And the way that my career has gone so far, even though it's not, you know, I've not received a Pulitzer Prize or an Emmy nomination or a BAFTA for a documentary or anything like that, it has still shown me that I can do what I put my mind to and I can have a real impact and anyone listening can too. 
We talked about your journalism journey. Now I want to dive a bit deeper and talk about your own mental health journey, Melissa. So I ask all my special guests on this topic this question first. Take me back to early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Melissa we meet here? So I would say that my early life was very idyllic. I was very lucky. My dad, as I said, became a very successful businessman. But before that, he was a taxi driver (laughs) and my mum was picking up shifts at the NHS. So it wasn't a particularly glamorous home for the first couple of years of my life. But I remember it very fondly. I had an amazing time at school. I had a lot of fun. I was an only child. So obviously school was the place to be to see other people my age and have fun. I was quite extroverted growing up. So I really enjoyed the school environment. I would say that I was really lucky. You know, there were times when I would struggle with certain things. Like I remember in year seven, when I moved to a new school, I struggled for a while because I didn't know anyone at the new school. And some of the kids were not very nice to me, but we were all 11. (laughs) I'm going to hope that they're nice now. (laughs) But to kind of sum up, I would say that I had a really, really lucky childhood. My parents absolutely fantastic and I was very happy. So I would say I became aware of mental health as a topic when I was like 16, 17, 18. So that is around 10 years ago now. And because obviously people had begun to talk more about mental health then and Also, when you're a child, you're so out of the loop of this sort of thing, if you're lucky, which I was. But when I was 17, my mum was diagnosed with a brain tumour and the whole ordeal. Oh, I just want to clarify for the listeners. My mum is absolutely fine. The tumour was benign and she was very fortunate. We had a wonderful operation and she's absolutely fine now and she's recovered. And it's been a few years since then. But as a teenager going through that, it was really hard. So my mum was diagnosed when I was 17. And as I said, the whole ordeal, the diagnosis, the deterioration of her health until she was able to have an operation and remove the tumour and the operation and, and then the recovery. I found this time, which probably was about a year in total, a year and a bit, I found this really hard, really destabilising because um, like I said, my childhood was quite idyllic at first didn't have that much, but my parents were really solid and there for me. And when one pillar of this family structure, seriously ill, it can Mm. be really hard for a kid that's used to things being quite stable. And that's when I started struggling with anxiety. I didn't know what a panic attack was. I'd never heard of it before, but I started having panic attacks. And now, like, I know they're panic attacks because I'm so well informed in in that area. (laughs) The amount of panic attacks I've had in my time and Obviously, I've been researching and learning and speaking to doctors and things. But at the time, I didn't know. I was so scared because I never saw my parents have panic attacks. I think anxious children, it can be two ways. Sometimes your parents have struggled with their mental health and you see that. Or sometimes you never see see that at all. And your parents have always kept a stiff upper lip or like they were just absolutely unaffected by any kind of emotional turmoil. I was kind of on that side. My parents definitely had their fair share of struggles when I was growing up. It certainly wasn't easy as no one's life ever is. But I never saw my parents actually face a mental health battle. For instance, I never saw my parents have panic attacks. I never saw my dad depressed or my mum worried about something in a very severe way that she couldn't go to work. They were very tough, which is something that we're not 
really a fan of in today's climate where more encouraging of people to go easy on themselves if they're not feeling great sit down relax and open up and talk about it so I wouldn't say that my parents approach to going through struggles was the correct way I, I do think it's always better to talk to someone that you trust and let your emotions out but I'm not sure they really had many like <laughs> severe emotions to let out like I said I never saw that kind of thing at home so when I started having panic attacks, it was very alien to me. I couldn't just link it to a parent and say, oh, well, you know, my mum's had loads of panic attacks and she was really anxious. This is, you know, something I've seen before. So I just felt really alone and I was really scared because one of the symptoms of panic and anxiety is obviously a fear. It doesn't really make much sense because it is kind of an illogical fear by name, <laughs> by nature. But one of the symptoms, as well as a beating heart or feeling disoriented, dissociated, these things, is literally like a, a mental worry, a fear. What if I collapse? What if I just die? I mean, it's not like that for everyone, but I think a lot of people do feel that way when they have panic attacks. It just leaves you totally off kilter. So I was really scared. What are these experiences? They're really horrible. And I didn't have a good point for that to identify this is a panic attack. This is what I need to do. It will pass and I'll be okay. Hadn't reached that level yet. Didn't have the toolkit yet. So I started having the panic attacks into my mum's illness. And it was kind of on and off. Like I wasn't having them every day. I was still going to school and trying my best and <laughs> existing. But I was going through them. And I would say that... It's something that I still struggle, don't actually, struggle is not the right word. It's something that I can experience today as an adult, but I'm not frightened of it anymore. Like I've learned how to deal with that and cope with that. If something extremely major goes on and I'm really worried, I may get panic attack symptoms, but I don't feel frightened like how I used to. So I guess that's kind of how my mental health journey started. I spoke with the GP about the panic attacks and the feelings of anxiety around that time. And I didn't really benefit from that, to be honest, because I didn't really know what panic and anxiety was back then when I was like 17, 18, going through all of this for the first time. So when my GP was saying, okay, we'd like you to do the NHS wellbeing service or something along these lines, I was like, no, this can't be right. <laughs> I was convinced I had some kind of like heart disease or something. I really didn't understand. I really didn't know that you can have all of these physical symptoms from your emotional and mental health. But over time, I grasped that and I started to benefit from all of the help out there online and the help that I sought in dealing with anxiety from the health service. Thankfully, and as I've said in the intro, and as you said there, your mum has recovered and is absolutely fine. Yeah. But having one of your parents' mortality exposed in such a way back then at such a formative age, what perspective did it give you on yeah. life then and now? Um, it made me more worried as a person. I have a worry within me sometimes about my loved ones you know if they go away if they go on holiday if, if I don't see them for a couple of days I feel like a lot of people in my age range you know even if they're super close with their parents or they, they have a loving partner or a really tight-knit group of friends if they don't see them for a while they're probably like ah, 
I, I'm sure they're having a great time. <laughs> I haven't heard anything on the phone, so everything must be absolutely fine. And if it was otherwise, I would know and we'd deal with it and it would be cool. I can worry a lot about people now. So if I don't hear from, well, I'm in very close contact with my parents. We still live very close to each other. And I was always really close with them, call and text all the time, see each other all the time. But, uh, you know, if they're traveling or been busy and haven't been in contact with them, if my partner's away, haven't seen my friends in a while, I do tend to like irrationally worry about people because I know how quickly mm. you can lose them if that makes sense. Even though I never lost my mum and I was so fortunate and lucky. And I think of that every day because losing a parent in your childhood, it's unimaginable absolutely unimaginable and so yeah I do feel lucky but it definitely has left me with a worry about the people that I love the people around me that I don't really ever say to them like my friends and my family will listen to this podcast and be like what <laughs> what are you talking about you never even text us <laughs> you haven't replied to my Instagram message from six years ago because you've been busy but but I do I do have that worry genuinely I do and I, I think it's because of that I think it's because my mum was really even though we were so fortunate and she was in such safe hands with a wonderful team of doctors here in the UK she was really at the precipice you know a brain tumour is is not a well, Benjamin Zephaniah just died of one recently and, god um, rest his soul and that took him yeah, in like three months yeah, or something yeah mm. it's scary it's really scary I actually am working on a story at the moment about a young woman who has been diagnosed with a brain tumour and it is so, so, so heartbreaking and so sad and so difficult and just unimaginably painful. And I think having a mild experience of that at a young age has made me a bit more of a worrier and has made me really value everything as well. I've always loved to take photos of everything. I've always loved to keep knickknacks and memorabilia, but I mm. do that even more nowadays. So yeah, definitely made me value people more and worry about people more. But yeah, certainly a really cruel disease that we mm. need to talk about more. We need to talk about more because there's not a lot of funding or research mm. going on there. Your dad has come up a lot in this podcast and he has also gone through his yes. own difficulties with his health if we fast forward a little bit because he was diagnosed with dementia earlier this year in 2023 and not just that but an uncommon form of dementia called frontotemporal yes. dementia or FTD which is the easy way of saying it so just tell me how you felt when he was diagnosed and the impact that it's had on him your family and the difference between that and the traditional form of dementia shall we say so frontotemporal lobe dementia, and I do feel comfortable speaking about this, even though I've shied away from some of the other medical questions because I don't have the right background. I'm comfortable speaking about this one because of the sheer amount of research we've done and the, the contact I've been in with my dad's consultant. So I've actually met people from Alzheimer's research in not being related to my dad just for my own journalism. So I'm happy to answer these questions for you. So frontotemporal lobe dementia is a form of dementia that typically affects people at the devastatingly young age of 45 to 65. Usually 40s and 50s really is very different to Alzheimer's, which can also be early onset, can also affect people in their 40s and 50s, even younger too, even though it's very, very rare for that to happen, but tends to affect people in elderly age, so people in their late 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. FTD tends to affect younger people. 
FTD it happens when your frontotemporal lobes, which are in control of your cognitive function and processing and executive function and decision making, begin to shrink. So while you don't have the same struggle with losing your memory as you do with the plaque buildup that plaque and that in your teeth, kind of, right? It begins with a P, but I can't That's remember a good what plaque, it is. Plaque gets into your I need brain. To now every, <laughs> I need to now retract everything I said about being well equipped to speak on this subject. <laughs> to all the listeners, I do not mean the plaque in your teeth. There's some kind of protein yes, that, that builds more, up yeah, in your yeah. brain. That sounds like more yes. makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. <laughs> There is some kind of protein that builds up in your brain. And I actually had a chat with some researchers at Alzheimer's Research about this quite recently. They told me this protein starts building up decades in advance of you even experiencing Alzheimer's symptoms. Right now I'm talking about Alzheimer's, but I'll go back to FTD in a second. So, you know, building this protein up in the decades leading up to experiencing Alzheimer's and Listeners are probably wondering, like, what? <laughs> how how can you have this going on in the background and not have any symptoms, not realise, and then get a diagnosis very late, where it's very difficult to actually do anything about that? Well, the reason why is because to a certain extent, your brain can actually tolerate this buildup. And when it tips over the edge, that's when things start to fall into a bit of havoc. So that's Alzheimer's. FTD, like I said, affects the frontotemporal lobes, they shrink. But with FTD, you also do experience that protein buildup in other parts of the brain, but to a much smaller extent. So with FTD, the initial symptoms, well, there are three different types of FTD, but I'm just going to talk about behavioral FTD, which is what my dad suffers from. There are two others, but you can kind of talk about them all together because they share a lot of similarities. And a lot of listeners will probably have actually become acquainted with FTD recently because Bruce Willis, mm. the much loved actor, unfortunately got diagnosed with it last year. And no one had ever heard of FTD before his family publicized his diagnosis. And I like Bruce Willis, nothing wrong with the guy, but I'm not the generation that loves Bruce Willis movies, but so many people love him. And I remember the grief outpouring from the public when they shared that he'd been diagnosed. So people may be familiar with the term because of the Bruce Willis news. But Bruce Willis's form of FTD is slightly different to my dad's one. So with my dad's one, the first symptoms are behavioral changes, executive functioning changes, doing things in ways that are not necessarily totally logical, behaving in a different way, becoming angrier. And then over time, this sort of all kind of deteriorates and deteriorates further into a full-blown confusion where you can begin to have memory problems as well, akin to Alzheimer's. It is an extremely cruel disease. And I am so, so heartbroken that there's not more research into this. And the reason why I say that, Freddie, is because the statistics are really alarming, not for FTD specifically, although we should always be aware of all forms of dementia because they all kind of come together. They, they are an umbrella group. But the statistics for dementia as a whole are really alarming. I believe for Alzheimer's specifically, I think by 2040 or 50, one in two or one in three members of the population are expected to have developed it. I definitely researched this at some point in my life and did speak to representatives at Alzheimer's Research, but I don't have the statistics right in front of me at the moment. So I think when you go and edit this, it's probably better to just double check that, Freddie, but the statistics are that high, if not exactly that. 
And that is really, really high. <laughs> That's really high. And people don't talk about it. I mean, one in two or one in three of us developing a debilitating neurological disease that there's no cure or, or proper treatment for. It's unimaginable. And that's why I'm really happy that Bruce Willis's family publicized his diagnosis. That's why I'm happy that more and more celebrities are doing that. There was Peggy off EastEnders a few years ago as well, who unfortunately passed away yeah, from Windsor, Alzheimer's. Yeah. yeah, I love Barbara Windsor. <laughs> I loved her so much. It was so sad. There's a lot more dialogue about it now. But that's what my dad has. And the reason why I feel quite comfortable speaking about it today is because obviously it needs attention. People need to, to know about the rising rates of dementia. And also within my mental health journey, I've developed the tools needed to cope with a parent being ill. If I was still that 17 year old girl and this had happened, I wouldn't even know what to, I would be struggling so much. And obviously every day is painful for me with this going on, but I am able to go to work. I'm able to support my mom. I'm able to speak with my dad and not cry. I'm able to do these things. And I'm really happy that I picked up the tools needed to control and manage my anxiety and panic. I'm also really fortunate that this happened as I'm getting into my later 20s. As I said earlier, imagining one of my parents, much loved parents being ill or like on the precipice of death as a teenager or a child is just a pain I could never even imagine. But so many people have unfortunately mm. gone through. And as the dementia has damaged his cognitive faculties quite quickly, how has that changed yes. your relationship is it still very strongly father-daughter are you kind of taking on more caring responsibilities it's completely changed our relationship because the reason why I, I took a bit of time at the beginning to talk about my dad is because that's my real dad that's how I remember mm. him and that's how I want to remember him in the future he's not really that man anymore it's all. grief isn't it absolutely I actually said to my partner a couple of weeks ago that I think I'm mm. going through grief because I feel such a like an echo of pain sometimes but I don't cry it's really just like a really strange feeling that I've not gone especially because the person hasn't died it's very hard to quantify it isn't it or yes. articulate it because it's grief but it's yeah. not grief over death it's grief over loss of person if that makes sense yeah absolutely it's a very particular kind of grief it's really hard to put into words but I'm sure listeners that may know someone with dementia or have gone through something similar can understand it's just like a background ache a sadness about like what could have been what should have been and what we hope will not happen again in the future with more research and funding for proper treatment the reason why I said a lot of people might find it cold-hearted when I say he's not really my dad anymore but people who know someone with dementia or have gone through the same thing will understand is is because as you rightly said earlier his disease has progressed really quickly that's what we saw with Bruce Willis, and that's what tends to happen with FTD. It progresses faster than Alzheimer's. It tends to. I don't know about every single case, but on the whole, it tends to progress at a faster rate. But they all do start slowly. And because of the progression, my dad's just a completely different person now. And I really, really struggle to... I think your original question was, how has it changed your relationship? Well, it's completely changed our relationship because... I can't connect with my dad on the level that mm. I used to anymore. All those, the like exhilarating creativeness that would that come from now? him. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. He is very ill now. He 
knows who I am. He knows who people are because that's more a progressed Alzheimer's thing. I, I think I may be wrong, but he's not him anymore. And he's very confused. And um, I don't mind talking about this because obviously the podcast is all about being open and vulnerable. And it's the topic that so many people in society, so many listeners will relate to and will appreciate the coverage of. But my mum and I are actually in the process of arranging professional care for my dad. And we're talking about care homes. That is what's happened. That is how much the disease has progressed. And obviously, when someone's at that level, like it, you can't sit and talk about the mm. articles you've written with them anymore. You can't go on days out with them and go to lunch with them and be like, wow, my dad is so cool. You can't do that anymore. It's all gone now. And it's really, really hard. So it's completely changed our relationship. It is more a daughter carer relationship, I would say. Um, but yeah, it's just totally altered. And I am really focused nowadays on just preserving my dad's memory and cherishing his memory and that influence and getting together all the photos and videos of him and making sure that we honor that. And as I said so many times, I'm sure other people have gone through the same thing with dementia can relate. Something interesting you said to me off air power is that when people often well-meaning ask you about either how your mum was doing at the time of the tumor or your dad is doing now, you find those regular questions quite distressing and you don't like being asked them on a regular basis. Is that because of the whole kind of you know repetitive bad news disclosure element yeah, yeah yeah I would say so I find those questions quite hard because as I said before I'm going through something that I don't even know how to put into words it's a particular kind of grief a sort of you're like, in the eye of the storm power aren't you yeah yeah a little like a sort of sadness that's always there that I haven't fully processed because everything's still going on and it all happened so quickly and um, this diagnosis and the deterioration and because of how young I am, like I, I say that I'm old enough to now deal with this properly and support my mum, but I'm still only 26, which I, I think a lot of listeners will probably say is quite young. I'm at the beginning of my career. I'm really trying to focus on enjoying my life, progressing as much as I can in my career, not in like a workaholic sort of way, you know, but in a way of wanting to produce as much as I can and working on things that I'm interested in. And I am more focused on this <laughs> and this kind of relates to what we talked about earlier because I almost lost my mum and now I'm losing my dad I know that life can be short shorter than you'd like and I want to look back at the end of my life no matter how long or how short it was to to think you know I, I did things that I enjoyed I did the best I could I focused on being happy and I didn't sit around and wallow about my dad's illness. Now, this obviously needs more elaboration because it's a really important part of processing this grief to sit with it and to talk about it and to understand what's going on with my dad and to get professional support. But at the same time, I know that my dad would want me to write and produce and create things and be happy and go to nice places because he used to always say no one in our family's gone to these places anymore. No one in our family's gone to these universities before he used to make these kinds of comments. So it would be like fantastic if you could push that high. I know that my dad would be, if he was still him, he'd be more comfortable and happy with me being happy and focusing on things that make me happy and things that he would have enjoyed instead of taking a long pause putting a long pause on everything going on in my life to just focus solely on, on his condition. 
before we move on to my next topic, as a journalist, Melissa, your job is to get people to open up, to talk to you, to be curious, inquisitive, open, all of these characteristics and qualities. But in your personal life, you prefer that privacy and you don't like someone coming in and trying to open up all these different crevices. How do you healthily separate those two? Um, that's a really tough question because I don't. And <laughs> <laughs> it, it links to what I said at the beginning, that I'm not a media trained person. Hopefully, as I go forward and I progress in my career, I, I will have more media training. I mean, I've had media training. I understand media law. But, but in terms of being a polished media character, I've not. Everything I am is just self-taught. So because of that, I never really had a professional self and a personal self kind of I'm always the same when I run interviews with people for stories I of course I I am as sensitive as possible but sometimes and I'm actually a little bit proud of this sometimes I probably come across like a friend to them and they probably feel like they're telling their story to someone who's just you know from the same small town they can open up to. This is obviously only appropriate with the kind of work that I do now, because while I do a couple of investigations, like the one in the contraceptive pill, I mainly do human interest stories, which is why I brought up the woman who's been diagnosed with a brain tumour. So that form of interviewing is obviously completely appropriate there. It's a softer, gentler form of interviewing. Obviously, if I was interviewing the like head of a corrupt dictatorship, well, that probably would, wouldn't be my journalistic approach. But at the moment, it works well. I am just myself and I don't really separate, but I probably do need to in the future. Let's talk about what you've spoken about a lot earlier in the podcast, Melissa, which is about your personal experience of the pill, which you were on Mm -hmm. from the ages of 24 to 25. And you've gone a lot into detail about it already. So I won't go over old ground here. However, you gave me one story off air, which I want to really kind of open up here, which is about a previous job you were in. And an editor gave you some negative feedback or constructive feedback, maybe or whatever you want to call it, on one of your stories. And instead of, you know, taking it on the chin, regrouping, coming back with a new story pitch, you ended up crying in the bathroom for two hours. Now, an uneducated person might look at that and go, you were being fragile, you're being too sensitive, whatever, whatever. However, this was actually the sign of deep medically induced psychological distress from the pill. Did anyone know that at the time? How did you feel? No one knew. It took me a really long time to realise because, as I told you off air when, when we first spoke, I have always been quite an emotional girl. I think creative people can be a bit emotional. Nothing wrong with that. I was always quite in tune with my feelings. I'd cry a lot, but I was never the way I was on the pill. The reason why I bring that up is because when I was going through all of this distress on the pill, I put it to that I put it to these earlier versions of Melissa that were very emotional (laughs) so I just thought uh, it's just me like there's no way the pill is having this kind of effect on me and even if it is it's a very minor effect probably so first answer is that no one knew not even myself until I bothered to sit and think about it and call it into question also because I didn't have very strong physical symptoms of like uh, you know the side effects you can get as a result of being on the pill I had a few towards the end of my tenure on the pill, I started to get really bad headaches, which was another push that led me to say, okay, enough's enough. Goodbye pill. But before that, it was just emotional. And occasionally I'd experience spotting, but that was nothing really out of the ordinary or something that I couldn't deal with. So because of the lack of physical symptoms, that's another reason why I kept saying, 
this stress is not to do with my pill. It's just me. <laughs> so I just want to add there that that editor, while they taught me a lot and I'm very grateful for my time with them, <laughs> some of the things they would say and their method of management, I'd say, was slightly, uh, slightly harsh for someone at the beginning of their career. And I say that in the most level-headed way. I haven't seen that sort of thing anywhere else. But my second point is, yes, I was very, very distressed. And I did cry for like two and a half hours. Wow. And then after That's a long time I, crying, pal. Christ. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I was so sad. After, after that, I left the toilet and I got the train home. This office was in London. I got the train home and ended up having gotten the wrong train uh, because I was so like distressed and upset and low. I just got on like this random train and I ended up in a different town and I had to call my parents to come and get me. <laughs> and I, it, was so, it was so embarrassing. It was like a total sad girl moment. So I cried for two hours. The timeline of events is that I cried for two hours, two hours and a half. Then I trudged out of the office to Liverpool Street Tube Station, got the tube, got to King's Cross, and then got like the first train into Hertfordshire that I could see because I, I still live in Hertfordshire. And I ended up in a wrong town and got off the train, kind of just thought, <laughs> lo and behold, look what has happened. Just kind of like walked around to the nearest five guys, got chips, sat down. Bougie, what a treat, five guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, my first choice would have been a McDonald's. I, I, we are not sponsored by McDonald's, but I just, I really like McDonald's. We're not sponsored by anyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think my first choice may not have been a Five Guys, but Five Guys was like the first high street chippy situation available. <laughs> so I went in there, got chips, like sat around really sad, called my parents to come and get me. And I just felt very low, very lost. I just felt so low that's the best way I can describe it obviously it sounds super like comical and like funny the way I've uh, described it but I did feel really low and in a way that I'd not really experienced before it was really strange it was like a black cloud was sort of hanging over me that's kind of how I felt and that's kind of how one of the girls in the story felt as well so I guess it, it kind of makes sense I want to talk about recovery now because you did cognitive behavioral therapy through the NHS in yep. 2022. So did you find it helpful? And if you did, what tools did it give you for your day-to-day -day mental health and when you came off the pill? I did find it helpful. So one thing that I learned there was that a lot of people listening will know how CBT works, but one thing I particularly benefited from was the fact that it kind of tells you about yourself. You can learn... Mm more about how you respond to stress and to emotionally difficult situations and I've always been writing and thinking and I've always been fairly introspective but I've never been like really analyzing myself after this I did so much introspection I did so much personal work at the beginning of this year, spring of this year, I was like Googling all kinds of things. <laughs> I learned about my shadow self, like all of these. Well, some, some of them sound really, really like wacky, but they were really helpful. So I, I've become very introspective is my point. But at the time, I didn't really know how to become like that. I didn't have the key to kind of open the door into self-reflection and figuring out what works for me and what helps me. And CBT helped me do that. So I learned that I am someone who likes to be in control of situations. 
not in a sort of menacing, controlling sort of way, but in a way that a lot of perfectionists are, a lot of people with high functioning anxiety are. I like everything. I like all my ducks to be in a row. If something's gone wrong, I like to go and deal with it right away. Nothing wrong with that. You know, everyone is different and unique and that is wonderful. But when you're faced with things like your dad having a type of dementia that there's no treatment for, you might have some kind of crisis at work that there's nothing you can do about. It's not, you know, Newsweek can't do anything if someone doesn't like this story. When these things are going on that are outside of your control, it can be really overwhelming and difficult for someone like me to, to, to cope with that. Because <laughs> I obviously want to step in and manage everything and get everything in order. And sometimes I can't. And that can leave me feeling quite anxious, distressed and worried. So CBT kind of taught me this is the lens that I look at things through. It taught me that I am a bit of a problem solver, but that I can actually change my label from problem solver to someone who can kind of just emotionally make themselves feel better for different situations. I feel like I'm explaining this in a really convoluted way, but long story short, the best thing that I learned, which I take forward every day, is that if a problem or something that's difficult for me is outside of my control, I should step back and kind of soothe myself emotionally focus on making myself feel better emotionally. And for me, that looks like relaxing, watching Netflix, um, talking to my friends, something like very fluffy and light that takes me totally outside of a really upsetting situation, whatever that situation may be. Maybe like a, a, a re-watching Gilmore Girls, I don't know, this kind of thing, talking to my mum, being with my dog. This is a really good way for me to respond to things that are very stressful, very difficult, that I don't have any kind of control over, like my dad's illness. So I've been focusing on self-care for that. But, you know, if, if I can solve a problem, like if I'm worried about an article that's due by a certain deadline and I haven't done it, then I can problem solve in that case and make a start and get the story filed by deadline. I don't know if that would work for other people. And the thing with mental health and finding the right toolkit for you is that it's such an individual journey and the right thing for me might not work for other people. But for me, that was really helpful because you're really at a catch 22 if you're someone who likes to be in control of the situation, manage everything, know what to expect, know what to anticipate because obviously anxious people, they like to know what's going to happen. I like surprises. I like things to be unexpected. I like to be challenged, but you know, you don't want to suddenly see someone ill. It's kind of what I'm talking about. That sometimes doesn't bode well with the real world where things can happen that are totally outside of your control. So a lot of listeners will probably think, well, how do you then make yourself feel better? What tools did you learn from CBT to help yourself and soothe yourself emotionally if you're not with your comforts, if you don't have Netflix right there or your dog right there? And in that case, I kind of just go into my mind and I reassure myself. I give myself a lot of resilience and reassurance that this will be okay, that I can do X, Y, and Z, that everything will be fine. And these are such simple affirmations, but they do really help me. So these are probably the takeaways from CBT that have stuck with me the most. And as a final question, before we move on, A, similar questions before, what has this mental health journey taught you about yourself? And B, 
if you could go back and talk to the Melissa whose mum had just been diagnosed with that brain tumour, the Melissa who was feeling lost and having that existential crisis whilst on the contraceptive pill, or the Melissa whose dad had just been diagnosed with FTD, what would you say to her knowing what you do now? I would tell her that there's always something to feel positive about. It sounds really corny, but I genuinely would. I'd say that everything will be okay. That there's always that, you know, life can be unfair, but there's always something to feel happy about and to be good at and focus on those things and you will be okay. That's what I'd say to her. I know that she needed a hug back then. (laughs) My mental health journey has definitely taught me that I am very human and that sounds very strange listeners are probably going to be like what did you think you were like doctor who a two-hearted alien (laughs) what what are you trying to say but um I genuinely feel more like a well-rounded comfortable like fully fledged like I've worn into my boots well sort of person and when I look at myself in the past like I look back at every version of my former self And I embrace that former self because it led to who I am today. And this version will lead to another version as it is with everyone else. But um, when I look back at the former (laughs) Melissa's, the the doctors that followed before the 15th doctor arrived, (laughs) I kind of see a very 2D cardboard cutout sort of version of myself. I've not really fully grown or become comfortable in myself yet. Even though I was very emotional, I didn't have like a wide variety of fine tuned emotions. I just feel a lot more like really at home in myself, really in touch with my emotions, can identify the different emotions a lot better. Well, I couldn't do this when I was younger. I didn't even know what panic attack was. Now I can identify, you know what? I feel a bit low and numb sometimes. And I feel a bit sad sometimes, even though I'm still smiling and happy with my friends at work, with my boyfriend. But I can identify this is the kind of background hum of grief. When I was younger, I wouldn't know any, I wouldn't understand this. And this is not to say that young people shouldn't be involved in these kinds of conversations. This was just who I was. There are so many teenagers out there who are so well-versed on mental health. And the education system is changing as well to make that more accessible too. But for me personally, I've definitely become someone far more in touch with their emotions and far more sensitive and comfortable and I guess happier with themselves. Our final topic of conversation, Melissa, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests. If we have time, it is a general natter and quick fire chat about our mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health? Pretty good. <laughs> Pretty under control. <laughs> Excellent. And can you remember the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What did you say? And how do you look back on it? Did it feel like on the one hand, this big moment or a weight had been lifted or on the other, something quite easy and normal to do? It felt like a lot of dots had finally been connected, that's for sure. My first conversation about my mental health at length, I might have like, (laughs) there might have been mental health conversations at school that I I don't really remember, but the big uh, breaking the ice one was with my mum. I was 23, I think, and I explained to her, you know, the reason I feel so-and-so is because I had a panic attack. The reason I had a panic attack was because of so-and-so. It was like I was presenting some kind of information, (laughs) a research paper. And my mum was really supportive, but it felt like so many dots were connected. It felt like many things made sense because panic and anxiety can be 
very overwhelming and the physical symptoms associated with that are very overwhelming as well. And to finally have an explanation behind what was going on to me physically and emotionally made me feel much better. And what things do you find in life that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people say to you, it could be a sound, a sensation, being in a particular social environment, or have you not figured all of them out yet? Number one, people arguing online (laughs) and saying things when I'm like down a rabbit hole on X or like the comment section of a YouTube debate or something and people are saying the most stupid things and arguing with each other. As a journalist, I'm just like, oh, so much misinformation. (laughs) So dangerous. That triggers me. What else triggers me? Seeing, for sure, seeing the current state of Iran and the regime in Iran on the news. But I think the interesting add-on to that is that when I do see distressing and triggering stories for work purposes or just, you know, reading the news, I can see them through a more professional lens and detach a bit. So it's not as triggering for me. But obviously, this uh, is a more sensitive subject for me because of my dad's background, which I guess makes a bit of sense. And oh, my final answer to this is just instability. As I went into a lot of detail about earlier, I'm quite quite an anxious temperament in some ways. I'm so much better at managing it nowadays. And I've always been very confident. I've always had my struggles with anxiety. As I said earlier, a lot of people with anxiety don't love instability and the unexpected. So when things are quite unstable, when there's no routine, when everything's a bit all over the place, when I don't know what's coming, that can be quite triggering for me. And conversely, what positive tools and methods do you use to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have worked? Maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? Um, actually, meditation works for me, which a lot of listeners might be surprised by because a lot of people say that meditation feels a bit more like a bougie, like <laughs> slow ranger sort of <laughs> a hobby, but it actually works for me in a mental health capacity. It really helps me slow down and breathe and process my emotions. What has been the best book or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? Now it can be mental health or self-help related. It doesn't have to be. And if you can't think of a book, a TV show, a album, any piece of popular culture. Okay, while I particularly messed up the the previous question, I have a very clear and concise answer to this one. So I'm going to give you three books, which I absolutely love. One is my all-time favourite book, and that absolutely have helped me with the way I look at the world and my mental health. So the first one is one that so many listeners will have heard of because it's quite popular nowadays. Dolly Alderton's Everything I Know About Love. I read this when I was 24, which I think is a key age in the book. So Dolly Alderton's a journalist at the Times and she's an author now as well. And the book is her memoirs, basically, of her 20s. She's in her 30s now and she wrote the book all about her 20s and about how messy and fun and beautiful your 20s can be, and about all the questions we have in that time, and the emotional turmoil we can go through in that time, how we compare ourselves to other people. A lot of people don't like that book. A lot of people find it cringy. I really like it. I think she's a great writer. Again, not sponsored by anyone, especially not Dolly Alderton (laughs) or her press office. But I really related to that book because I read it when I was 24, which, as I said, is like a key age in the book. And there's a lot of writing there of her looking back at her at that time. 
very relatable, really made me feel better, especially because the author went on to be a journalist. So I guess I saw some similarities and I could really identify with Dolly and made me feel less alone. She was writing about struggling to be a journalist and wanting to be a creative and not knowing how to get into the industry and feeling lost and left behind all her friends and things. And I found that very soothing. So the second one is Voltaire's Candide or The Optimism which is a very old book by the philosopher Voltaire. And the book is all about this guy who goes on some kind of expedition. (laughs) And very long story short, he goes on this tour of the world, basically, and is just completely met with obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. The most random things ever, because obviously the book was written by a philosopher, So he was more making a point (laughs) than writing a story that would be realistic. So this poor guy would be like getting attacked by like this army and this group of people and this would happen and this would happen. And at the very end, he remains optimistic. And I love that. It's a lovely message and is really helpful when you look at it through a mental health lens, a modern lens. So much goes on in the world and in your personal life too. So many obstacles to tackle. And you come across so many hurdles along the way. And it's really hard to feel optimistic after going through so many things, but it's possible. And I really like the message of that book. The last one is my all-time favourite book, The Leopard by Giuseppe Tomasi di Lampedusa. So my boyfriend's Italian, but obviously he's not on the call. So I am now here butchering (laughs) the author's name. (laughs) Um, But The Leopard is a book that is regarded as a classic, but not many people my age have heard of because the book was published a very long time ago and it's not really like stuck around, I guess, (laughs) in in, like modern subculture. But it's my favourite book of all time and I particularly love it because it's about a aristocratic Sicilian family in the Sicilian nobility, in the like noble structure of that time. And it is based in the time frame of the Italian unification and the end of all of these individual principalities and noble states. And this aristocratic family, the prince of this region, is like panicking about this change in the landscape and really, really worried about Garibaldi unifying Italy. The reason I love it is because the family adapts and survives. And the main takeaway from that book for me is a quote from one of the characters in the book. He says something like, if you want everything to stay the same, then things will need to change. And it's all about adapting to your current setting to make things work, to make the best of a bad situation. I love that. And it's kind of good for journalism as well. So yeah, that's my all time favorite book. And it had a really positive impact on me too. I've got two questions left. The first one is, what do you love about yourself? Um, I think I, well, I certainly don't get straight to the point. <laughs> I, I can't, <laughs> you certainly love a chat. I can't say that. <laughs> I, w- what I love about myself is probably, I would say I'm quite open. I'm happy to talk about anything really. And I'm quite warm. I would say I'm a very warm person. I'm a hugger. I love getting my friends presents. I love sending them Christmas cards. I like doing all of these things. And I really take pride in that. I have just moved to a new home and I can't wait to have my friends over and like <laughs> give them little canapes and things. I'm really happy with that. I think that I'm a very warm person and I love my warmth. And I'm also very open to and happy to talk about topics that are difficult and challenging. And I don't shy away from that. And as a final question, What more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about the mental health issues 
or just their general mental health if, most importantly, they want to do it. We need to carry on exactly as we are. Over the past few years, I personally, and I'm sure listeners can agree, that there has been so much more conversation out there about mental health, so much more awareness about mental health and the impact that we have on each other's mental health. So much work has been done to kind of promote people to really be thoughtful and considerate before they open their mouths and say something horrible to someone else. For people to feel empowered to look after their mental health and not think it's some kind of snowflake (laughs) manoeuvre, but an important and crucial part of life to look after yourself. Looking after your mental health, I think, is as important as exercising, eating well, brushing your teeth. I mean, I've seen my dad. (laughs) I know how important your mind is. And I think we need to carry on exactly as we are. We need to keep talking because our generation will grow up, we'll have kids, and we're instilling a whole new culture into the next generation to feel open and empowered to talk about their feelings. And this isn't to say that older people are not involved in this conversation. There are so many fantastic people out there over the age of 50, 60, 70 who have completely like either always been totally emotionally open or aware of the toll that mental health can take or have really gotten on board with this new movement we need to just carry on with the work that we're doing not stop talking and not let our the busyness of everyday life step in the way of that if your friend's having a bad day and really wants to talk about something that could be really serious and painful for them it's important to make some time there and not think, oh, well, I've got loads of admin to do today. I've got to take the bins out. <laughs> it's, it's important to try and make a bit of time there and prioritise that. So keep the work going and keep talking for sure. Melissa Afshar, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me, pal. Thank you so much for having me, Freddie. It's been wonderful. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to Melissa for being my special guest on this episode and for letting me check in with her. I will, of course, put a link to where you can read Melissa's Newsweek article in full and follow her on social media in the show notes. I'll sign us off by saying thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give this podcast a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and help us out with the algorithms. If you like what we're doing here at Vent, please consider supporting us by going to our Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk or go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash venthelpuk to find out more about all the other ways you can financially support Vent. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Vent.